Hey everybody, welcome to Music Therapy. So many of my friends and therapy clients have been feeling anxious about returning to social situations after living for so long in lockdown. But what exactly is social anxiety and what's the difference between social anxiety and social anxiety disorder? And what can you do to make social situations easier for you? And what coping mechanisms should you avoid? That's coming up on today's Music Therapy. I'm Jessica Risker, and I'm a musician based here in Chicago, Illinois. I'm also a licensed clinical professional counselor. Music Therapy is a show where I dive deep into the psyche of musicians. Today, we're going to focus on a mental health issue. I want to talk about social anxiety because lately I've been hearing so many people express anxiety about returning to social situations after lockdown. And so I wanted to offer you some information about social anxiety, what you can do to address social anxiety, and what you should not do to cope with social anxiety. And to help us understand all this, today I'm going to talk with Dr. Lauren Neiman. Dr. Neiman is a clinical psychologist and a chief clinical officer at the Depression and Anxiety Specialty Clinic of Chicago. She specializes in treating anxiety disorders using cognitive behavioral therapy and exposure with response prevention. Dr. Neiman has presented at national conferences on topics related to social anxiety and is the current co-chair and a board member of the National Social Anxiety Center. First, here's a quick song from me. This is How Have You Been? And if you think the skies are gray Too restless for the night Around the earth in 40 days Still spinning from the flight Have you been my friend? It's been so long You ought to know It's how you are Certain what to do with you until I found and picked a penny off the ground and turned the clues around. Have you been my friend? I feel so far you ought to know. It's how you wanna wanna know. Have you been? Have you been? Let's turn to my conversation with Dr. Lauren Neiman about social anxiety. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. I've had a lot of friends and clients and other musicians talk to me about feeling really nervous or anxious about returning to social engagements after being at home so much and what that's going to look like. On one hand, sometimes they're excited, but they're also feeling quite anxious about it. And I wanted to uh, learn a little bit more today about social anxiety in general and also social anxiety as it pertains to returning to a post-lockdown world. So I was hoping you could maybe start out by giving us a definition of, of what social anxiety is. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, we are seeing a lot of this reopening anxiety, you know, in particular um, in relation to social anxiety. So I think this is a important topic. Um, but yeah, I mean, social anxiety at the core of it is really just a fear of negative evaluation from other people, you know, quite simply. And so that could be, you know, in any context, really, like it could be at a party, it could be a performance, right? Um, or it could be at an interview or a first date. And those are times where most people feel socially anxious. They're sort of evaluative situations. Um, and most people have some levels of social anxiety, just like most people have certain levels of anxiety generally. It can be really useful. If we had, if we had no social anxiety, then like we would just be doing our own thing, not caring at all what anybody thought. And that would sort of be problematic, right? No one would be polite. No one would probably take showers or be on time or do things, you know, following sort of social rules. So to some extent, social anxiety can be useful for us. Um, but the problem is when it really, you know, crosses that line into um, being sort of like the primary way in which people are seeing things and that really almost a phobia, right? Social anxiety disorder is also called social phobia. And people are really, really scared um, and feel a lot of anxiety about this potential of um, negative judgment or negative evaluation by other people. Um, so when we're talking about social anxiety disorder, then there's some sort of functional impairment, um, whether that's, you know, a business person who is not able to speak up at meetings and so then doesn't get that promotion and can't advocate for um, himself or herself. And that um, that's, that's now crossing over the line. It's no longer helpful. Now it's actually getting in someone's way. Um, maybe someone who won't go on dates because they're too scared of that potential rejection and then don't end up finding a partner and maybe they want one. Right. How would you, what would be some examples you could imagine for a musician or performer with social anxiety impairing their functioning? Mm -hmm. I mean, the most obvious one would just be avoidance of saying, you know what, I've played the guitar for 15 years and I'm really, really good and I'm just too terrified to get on the stage. So I guess I just won't do it. I guess I'll do someone else or do something else. I've definitely had um, clients who have music backgrounds and work office jobs because they were just too too scared to get up there. Um, so that would be like the biggest one, right? I'm just not doing it. Um, other ways that might be functionally impairing, you know, it could be that they um, they try, they go for it, but, but maybe the anxiety is too impairing and gets in the way and they sort of, it does impact their performance. And like, maybe they don't like get that gig or, or they're not able to make that, that band they were trying out for, or they, you know, aren't able to, um, to record something because maybe the anxiety really is interfering their performance. Um, what would you say the difference between, you know, what we refer to as stage fright versus social anxiety? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, that's an important distinction. Just like we would talk about someone maybe who's shy versus someone who has like a social anxiety disorder. It's really a level of impairment right? Like most people have some fear of public speaking. That's very normal. It's always in the top three of phobias. Um, and, uh, you know, in the literature, it's flying dentists and, um, and public speaking. Those are the top three. And so most people are getting up in front of a stage of performing are going to feel something they're going to, you know, get the jitters or maybe have stage fright, but they're able to continue on and, and do it. Um, so I would, I would sort of characterize that stage fright of like, Ooh, this is tough. I don't like this. I've got the butterflies. Maybe I'm, you know, not feeling so great. Um, but I really want to do this and I'm going to find a way to make it work. Um, as opposed to social anxiety disorder, if it's really that impairing, maybe they're not able to, you know, maybe they don't have the tools and the skills to be able to do that or to tolerate that level of anxiety. Okay. That's helpful. So you're making a distinction there between social anxiety and social anxiety disorder. Can mm -hmm. you, can you clarify that distinction? Yeah. Yeah. Like I was saying um, before, everyone has some, most people have some extent of, to, of social anxiety. And that just means in some situations, sometimes it's more likely that people might be concerned about being negatively evaluated. Right. So if someone's giving a talk or if someone's on a first date, like oh, those are times that we might be more likely to be negatively evaluated. And that might push us to maybe try to perform a little better. Um, but social anxiety disorder, again, is when it's it's impairing um, or social situations are endured with great amount of distress or they're avoided altogether. Um, another thing that people um, who've developed like the diagnostically social anxiety disorder tend to do um, 
that other people don't do is they engage in a lot of what we call safety behaviors. And this is a huge part of, um, of the treatment actually is addressing these safety behaviors um, because what they end up doing in the long run is they end up reinforcing the anxiety even though people are trying to use them as ways to cope. So some really common examples would be like, oh, I'll go to this party, but I'm kind of going to stand in the corner and play on my phone a lot, right? Phones are great safety behaviors for people these days. Yeah. Or maybe I'll have an extra drink or two before I go. Um, or maybe I'll take a Xanax, like very popular, right? These days, like, oh, I'm feeling anxious. I'll take a Xanax or something like that. Um, or I'll mentally rehearse what I'm going to say. So while someone else is talking, I'm going to mentally rehearse what I'm going to say. And the problem with all of these things I mentioned, and there's hundreds of others, um, is that they sort of work in the moment. They're great band-aids. Like a Xanax will calm you down. If you rehearse what you are going to say and then you say it well, well, that just reinforced that you should probably keep doing that. Um, but the problem is that none of these safety behaviors or tools actually teach people that like, I can tolerate this. Like I can just do this on my own. Then we get really reliant on these other things. Um, and it actually makes the fear greater in the long run. Um, and so the the, the uh, safety behaviors and people engaging in the safety behaviors is also a, a good um, sort of marker of like, when does this become more problematic? Because you'll meet folks and they'll say, no, I can do all that. I just need to make sure that like, I have my safe person with me. I have my phone and that I've, you know, taken my Xanax or that I, you know, I've prepared my script in my head, then I'm done and good. It's like, but then you're not really good because then you have all of these crutches that are not actually helping you in the long run to like bolster your sense of ability to cope. So as part of, you know, what you do when you work with clients is help them to actually tolerate that sense of anxiety. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's such a misunderstanding in just our culture and our society that like anxiety is bad. And that like, if I feel it, I must do anything I can to get rid of it. I can't tolerate it. Um, we talk a lot about like just the intolerance of anxiety. And so if we can really shift that and reframe that for folks and say like, anxiety isn't a bad thing. It's really helpful in a lot of situations, mm -hmm. you know, thinking back to like, you know, caveman days or whatever, what, you know, like if there's a tiger chasing you, you need that anxiety yeah. to run. That's a really useful emotion. We get to decide now when is this useful for me and when is it not? And going to a party is not the same as being chased by a tiger. And so we might be feeling those same feelings because we're having, you know, like there's a there's some there's a misfire going on in our, you know, in our nervous system. Um, and that's okay. I can feel that and I can stay in the situation. So the more people are able to um, sort of make that shift from like anxiety is bad, I must get rid of it to mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes anxiety is helpful. Here it's not. Here I don't need to listen to those signals. And if I can feel that and stay in the situation, that's a really, really uh, powerful thing for people to learn and experience because then we're opening doors. Like, oh, I can do these things while I'm anxious. Didn't occur to me, right? <laughs> right. Do, yeah. you, do you make a distinction between the word nervous and anxiety? If someone says I'm nervous or I'm anxious, would you say that's the same word or would you think that there's two different meanings there? Yeah. I mean, I tend to think of that sort of on a continuum. Like I would consider nervous to be just anxiety. It's just a little bit of like maybe a lower, uh -huh. but that's maybe just my conceptualization of it. I think a lot of those words can be interchangeable. You know, people talk about like being scared, being nervous. Um, having anxiety or having a fear, like they're sort of all similar. At the end of the day, they're fear-based. Correct. The words yeah. are fear-based. Mm -hmm. You, you know, when you're defining social anxiety, it's sort of a, a fear of judgment of others. In your work, do you find that there is a common category of judgments that people tend to experience that they're worried about, or is it very mm -hmm. scattered and varied? Mm -hmm. No, that's a great question because there are um, a few that tend to come up most often. Yeah. And so typically, yeah, that's, and that's a question I always want to know from people. Like, what do you, what is the worst thing that someone could think about you? Like, what do you really not want? Um, yeah. How do you not want to be thought of? And um, actually one of the top ones is just anxious. Like, I don't want people to see that I'm anxious. So people are really worried about like, if I'm blushing or what if I'm sweating or, um, yeah, what if I kind of stammer over my words? Like, then they'll know I'm anxious, and then they've sort of figured me out. Um, so appearing anxious is a really big one, um, as is incompetence. 
I don't ever want to seem incompetent. Um, and then, and then there's sort of a third one, which is just sort of like, um, like weird or boring, just sort of like a vague, like generally, um, like generally not someone people want to be around. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are, those are the big ones that we, we hear the most, um, here at this clinic. And I know that a lot of the exposure works that we do, um, which is part of the treatment plan is um, a lot of like exposing people to like appearing anxious or to appearing incompetent. And how can we get you better at being incompetent and having people think that about you and being okay with that, right? Okay, great. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. really interesting. That's helpful. So obviously we have been through an extended period of kind of forced isolation, whether it's just with ourselves or with a family or a roommate or something like that, but we weren't able really to be social in the way that we were used to, or maybe even had to before. And how do you feel, you know, the lockdown from the pandemic may have contributed to social anxiety or social anxiety disorder? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so in order to answer this, let me give a little more background on just the concept of like avoidance when we talk about anxiety disorders, because I think that will it will make it a lot clearer. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we think about general, whether it's social anxiety or general anxiety, um, any kind of anxiety, what we what we know maintains the anxiety. So what keeps the anxiety going or makes it worse um, is avoidance in a very general way. And avoidance can look like lots of different things and lots of different disorders. Um, but generally we know that avoidance makes it worse. So let me give an example unrelated to social anxiety just to make it really clear. So um, this is an example I use with all my clients. It's just a very simple example of like, let's say that I'm afraid of dogs and I'm walking down the street and there's a woman coming with a big dog. So she's got a Rottweiler or something. So, you know, here they're coming towards me. And of course, since I'm afraid of dogs, I'm going to have some like negative assumptions about what's about to happen, right? I'm going to think, oh no, this dog, this is a big, scary dog. This dog's going to attack me. This dog's going to kill me. I'm going to have these thoughts. My anxiety physically is going to, you know, rev up. I'm going to feel like my heart racing, I'm going to get sweaty. I'm uncomfortable. I don't like the situation. And so what am I likely to do? Well, I'm likely to turn around. I'm likely to cross the street. I'm likely to get out of there, right? I'm likely to escape that like fight or flight response. So let's say, you know, I cross the street and then the dog's over there and I'm here and my anxiety comes down and I'm feeling all better. Um, And so most people in this scenario would say, well, great, problem solved, moving on. The problem here is that I did nothing to teach myself that A, maybe that dog might've like not attacked me, maybe that would have been okay. Um, I didn't get to learn that. So by running away, I just reinforced my fear. Like that now dogs just got a little bit scarier for me um, by creating all that distance. But more importantly, I think from an anxiety perspective is I also learned that I cannot tolerate anxiety like I was referencing earlier. I just learned that like, I must do anything I can do to get rid of this experience. Um, And so that was actually really problematic that I ran away, even though it seemed like, what's the big deal? actually was a big deal. So when we think about social anxiety and all the ways people can avoid, and the list goes on and on, um, whether it's, you know, just not going somewhere, whether it's choosing to text someone instead of calling them, um, or choosing to text someone instead of seeing someone face to face. Um, there's all sorts of subtle ways that we can avoid social interaction, even if it seems like we're being social. So, um, pandemic lockdown, this was, couldn't have been any more avoidant. So whether or not people had pre-existing social anxiety disorder, maybe just were on the shyer side, or maybe didn't really struggle that much socially, um, we were all engaging in avoidance. Some of us didn't really want to, some of us loved it. A lot of my clients were like, well, this is great. (laughs) Um, So, so, I mean, in a nutshell, we just, we, we avoided for over a year, most people anyway. So then coming back to it, well, now we're really out of practice and we've reinforced that fear so much every day. And we were sort of encouraged to do that, right? Like stay, well, not sort of, we were stay home, stay away from people. Um, and while there are ways to stay connected, whether it was like <laughs> Zoom, phone calls, texts, there were ways, um, but those are all a little bit inherently avoidant. And so folks that maybe wanted to avoid already were able to do that for a really extended period. Yeah, really given permission, in fact, encouraged to. Yeah, yeah. Do you, I'm interested 
you know, when you're talking through the example of avoiding the dog crossing the street or turning around and saying, you know, this reinforces the anxiety, do you feel that that kind of holds the same amount of anxiety in place or does that build on the anxiety? Does it make the anxiety worse over time? It actually does make it worse over time because every time people engage in some sort of avoidance, it reinforces this idea that like, I can't tolerate this feeling and it's bad and I must get rid of it. And so sort of our ability to tolerate anxiety goes down and down or keeps going down every time we do that. Cause we're never having the experience of, Hmm, I'm sort of anxious. Let me see if I can just like sit with this or let me see if I stayed in the situation that doesn't happen. And so our perceived ability to cope plummets and anxiety, you know, from a cognitive perspective is an overestimation of bad things happening. So like this dog will attack me when that probability is probably low in reality, but like high estimated risk levels paired with underestimation of one's ability to cope. And that's a very scary place to feel, right? Like all these bad things are going to happen and I'm not going to be able to handle it. And so every time we avoid that gap gets like bigger and bigger. Yeah. Like not using a muscle. It just, right. After a while. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. When I work with clients who have anxiety, you're, you're talking a lot about the cognitions or the thoughts that accompany mm-hmm. the anxiety. So this dog's going to attack me. Maybe this dog will attack me. But some of my clients don't know the thoughts they're having. They just feel anxious. And mm-hmm. when I try to explore with them what that's about, it can be really, really hard to connect with that. And what are your thoughts to help somebody connect with the, the cognitions or the thoughts behind their anxiety? Hmm. Um, that's a good question. Yeah, I feel like this comes up sometimes. Sometimes clients, it's hard to access exactly what the fear is. Um, sometimes, yeah, I might ask, um, or you could have you know, folks ask themselves, like, if I were to stay in this situation, what do I think will happen? More of like a prediction as opposed yeah. to what is the thought that like, what was the anticipatory thought that led to the anxiety? But like, now that I'm anxious, what do I think might happen if I stayed here? I find oftentimes with those clients, it is more of that like physical, like that panicky and folks with social anxiety disorder, that is like another, um, could be a diagnostic, like rule in, rule out. Like are people like having panic attacks in social situations? So sometimes it is that like just overwhelming physical panicky experience of like, if I stay in this, I'm going to somehow like people say like, I'm going to lose my mind or I'm going to lose control or I'm going to have like a heart attack. Like it's not so much, you know, um, a specific, like I'm worried this person won't like me, but like now I'm here and now my body is doing this thing where I'm feeling really panicky and now what's going to happen. Here's, this is kind of a branch off question, but I would be really interested in hearing your thoughts on this because it feels like your level of expertise and the work that you do, you would have ideas about this. You know, I have, I'm thinking of a client in particular who he doesn't have social anxiety, but he does have a lot of anxiety, a lot of kind of obsessive thoughts about illness or Mm -hmm. getting sick. And Mm -hmm. he's really struggled with his anxiety in the time of COVID. And a lot of, you know, what he tries to do to calm his body down is to do deep breathing. But then mm-hmm. if he feels he can't catch a deep breath, mm-hmm. what's going on? Do I have COVID? You know, yeah. and it's yeah. just, it's just a really terrible place to mm-hmm. be. But I'm, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on, there's a lot of, I know anxiety manifests. I'm, I'm branching off a little from social anxiety, but yeah. body fears that uh-huh. is very, um, you know, relevant right now. How would you, you know, maybe work with somebody who is struggling with that in, in the world of COVID. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Health anxiety is, um, is a tricky one for sure, because we do have to, you know, COVID or not, like we, we do want to be healthy and take care of our bodies. And if something is, you know, not feeling right or not sitting right, it is you know important to go to a doctor. Um, but when it crosses that line into like, you know, hypochondria, you know, hypochondria, hypochondria, sorry. Um, or health anxiety or like, you know, OCD with the health anxiety bench, they all sort of like function the same way. Um, Then it gets problematic because then doctor seeking is actually that safety behavior or avoidance behavior um, or compulsion. And so we don't want people to do that or to be really somatically focused and monitoring their experience constantly because then that can be compulsive. So it is really like finding that balance of how can we try to enact that value of physical health without it being an you know, anxiety, um, 
like an anxiety cycle. And your point about breathing is a really good one because there are some people, the research is showing, you know, deep breathing used to be like our go-to, like for physical anxiety, use deep breathing. And it still is probably our best tool, but there are some folks that actually the focusing on the breath increases their anxiety. They get really um, focused on like that feeling Mm -hmm. and like, am I getting a full breath? And like breathing this way sort of like stresses me out. So for some people, breathing is actually not the most useful strategy and doing more like relaxation, you know, like PMR, you know, tensing and um, Uh seeing the muscles might be more helpful or doing like an external focused, mindful exercise, mindfulness exercise, like something more physically grounding as opposed to deep breathing. Cause you will hear people um, it's not the norm, but it does happen when they say that breathing thing just really stresses me out. And especially now with COVID too, people are then maybe like, you know, excessively monitoring, am I able to get a full breath? Am I not? And what does that mean? And so let's like refocus, like away from ourselves and see what's in the room, notice our surroundings um, and not get so focused on whether or not we're breathing. That makes sense. And when you say PMR, you're referring to progressive muscle relaxation. Yeah, sorry. Yes, progressive muscle relaxation. And there are, um, just to our listeners, there are tons of YouTube videos out there Mm -hmm. for guided relaxation, progressive muscle relaxation, that can be good resources. Um, yeah, yeah, they're very easy to find. How would you, you know, if somebody is listening and they're wondering, they're, my level of anxiety, I, I, I feel some social anxiety. Is it clinically significant? Is it a disorder? What, you know, should I seek help? What would you have them look at or sort of ask themselves to help them you know, they may not be able to make that, that diagnosis kind of on their own, but what might be some signs that you would have them look for to see if it's sort of crossing that line? Mm-hmm. Order. Yeah. I mean, I think like behaviorally, the hallmark would be like, am I, am I avoiding things that I normally would want to do? Like, I would like to go, you know, to this party, or I would like to go to this work happy hour but I just feel too anxious. Like that's a really good indicator of like, wow, now your anxiety is getting in the way of things that are important to you that you want to do. Um, so like urges to avoid, or if you know, and people are usually pretty insightful, like, no, I do all the things. I just do them with my tools. Again, going back to that idea of safety behaviors. Like if it feels like, well, if someone asked you to go to that party, but you couldn't have a drink before, what would happen? Oh, well then I wouldn't go. Well, then maybe that's an indicator that, that um, that's reaching a level that is, you know, more diagnostic. Um, another thing though, that I would encourage people to think maybe, I mean, there's the behavioral piece, but also just like how they feel, right? Like, gosh, I'm noticing that I'm feeling really anxious when I'm even just talking to my friends or even, you know, talking with coworkers, like my heart's racing. I'm, you know, I'm feeling flush. Like I feel like it's out of context, right? People are able to logically usually, you know, say, I feel like I'm being threatened, but I'm not. Why am I feeling anxious in this situation? I'll have a lot of clients say like, there's no reason to be anxious. I'm just out to lunch with my coworkers, but I'm really feeling anxious. Like, okay, if it feels out of proportion to the situation, um, that could be another indicator that maybe um, it might be it might be a good idea to be professionally evaluated. Um, but I would encourage anyone, if there's even a thought, huh, is this, what's going on? <laughs> is this something I should seek help for then? Yeah, sure. Go get an evaluation. I think there's a misconception about if I go see a therapist, then I have to go see a therapist every week for five years, which no, like you might just go and say, Hey, I'm kind of wondering about what's going on. Maybe get evaluated. And maybe the conclusion is like, I don't need to see a therapist or a psychiatrist, whatever it is, you know? Yeah. Um, but I would encourage people if they even wonder at all, then get an evaluation, chat with someone. Maybe there are things you can do to improve the quality of your life that you weren't aware of. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that keeps coming up when you're talking just, just now is, is that with this experience, people are generally aware of an inner conflict. So I want to do this thing, but I can't, or Mm-hmm. I should be able to talk to my friends, I feel, but it's really, really hard for me so that they are very cognizant of that experience rather than fully believing, you know, I just can't go. That's bad. People will be laughing. It, it feels like there is a level of awareness and and the struggle is with that conflict. I would like to, but I can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And we talk a lot about, you know, changing the butt to the and in treatment of like, like you said, like, well, I'd really like to go to that party, but I'll be too anxious. So I can't rather than like, 
I'd really like to go to that party and I'll be anxious and I'll go. And like that, again, opening doors of like, we can do things when we're anxious and not seeing anxiety as a, as a barrier. Um, but absolutely to your point, it usually feels like um, they're sort of um, conflicting with like what they value and what they find important. And they're not able to do those things or they feel like they're not able to do those things. So can you share with us kind of moving on to what people can do um, what kind of work you do with people who have social anxiety or social anxiety disorder? How do you work with somebody struggling with that? Sure. So, yeah, I um, use primarily um, cognitive behavioral uh, strategies, CBT, and then also um, acceptance and commitment therapy, which is called ACT, um, for people that are you know familiar with different treatment modalities. But um, primarily, we're looking at you know the thinking patterns that I've reference a little bit, we really want to get a good sense of like, what are these predictions that uh, people are making about what the experience will be like? We've got, you know, the anticipatory anxiety, um, when they're actually in the situation, what kinds of thoughts are they having? Um, because we know that there's a tendency for folks with social anxiety to be really internally focused because they're also evaluating themselves and their performance. Yeah. And that really backfires because if I'm talking to you and the whole time I'm thinking about how dumb I sound, how dumb I look, how much you must dislike me, then I must be sort of detached because I'm preoccupied, preoccupied with myself. Um, and then I do come across as a little bit aloof and distracted and I can't really maintain a conversation because I'm distracted by all the ways that I'm beating myself up. Um, and so then it sort of does perpetuate this, this loop of, well, then that person seemed disinterested in me. It's like, well, you probably seem disinterested in them because you were thinking about how poorly you were performing in this um, social situation. So we'll look at, you know, those kinds of thoughts and talk about strategies to get back to the external focus. Like let's focus on that other person, not so much on how you're performing. Mm -hmm. um, and then the aft afterwards, right. Then there's thoughts about how it went afterwards, which we call post-event rumination, which is just a fancy way of saying, like, I think about that thing after it happened and how mm -hmm. awful I did. Um, so those are all sort of the, the self-talk or cognitive components that we try to, to help folks um, like reframe or create different relationships with those thoughts. So before, during, and after, there's all sorts of unhelpful thoughts going on that reinforce the anxiety. Um, and then from the behavioral standpoint, it's a lot of exposure work. And this is the stuff that people hear about and they think it sounds really scary and they don't want to come in and do it. Um, but it's done in a very thoughtful, graduated way. So we start with sort of like easier situations and then we build our way up into the more challenging scenarios. Um, but, you know, some examples of exposures, depending on what the fear is. So let's say the fear is when I'm going back to that idea of like, I'm so scared that someone will think I look anxious. Okay, so what we actually want to do, as odd as it sounds, is we want to expose people to situations where it's really likely people are going to perceive them as anxious so that they get better at tolerating that experience so it doesn't feel like they have to try to live their lives in a way to avoid it. So, you know, simple ways that you can do that, you know, we'll have people, um, and these might be higher level, these might not be starter exposures, but just... Yeah. As an example, like we might have people, you know, sort of like uh, blot their forehead with some water so it looks like they're sweating or maybe get like uh, water under their, you know, shirt so it looks like they're sweating and just go out in public and have people see them appear sweaty and that like maybe that person thinks you're nervous and like what is that like to tolerate that? Um, or having people uh, get really hot and run, run around a bit so they are sort of flushed and then maybe going to a store and talking to a, um, an employee at the store while appearing anxious or having people intentionally stammer over their words or something like that. Um, so there's, there's, you know, an exposure component and we call those social mishaps because we're actually trying to elicit those responses and those are tougher. Um, but lower level ones might be just, let's just go into, you know, a store and ask a cashier for help or let's, go to this party and this is your goal for the party. You're gonna introduce yourself to three people. It's very structured. Um, and did you meet your goal and what was that like? Um, as opposed to, well, just go to the party and see how that goes. Cause that's what people are doing on their own. And that can be really frustrating and actually reinforce the anxiety. Um, so we do, yeah, a lot of exposure work and a lot of uh, cognitive, you know, reframing and, and having people, um, really pay more attention to the utility or helpfulness of their thoughts and how their thoughts are, um, you know, in most cases, really moving them further from the life that they want to be living. So would you pair an activity like 
going to the party and saying hi to one person, would you do that maybe the night before a therapy appointment so that you can really be there with your therapist to review the feelings instead of giving it a few days? Or what does that generally look like or more, is most effective, do you find? Um, not necessarily. Uh, we could, um, but we have um, people do like tracking and there's logs like so that they have a really structured way of sort of really evaluating what happened. And so there's um, a form we use in particular, it's called the record of social situations. And they do a really nice job of like beforehand, you would fill out like, what do you predict will happen? How likely is that thing to happen? How bad would it be if it did happen? Um, and how long would those consequences persist? Something I haven't mentioned yet as part of social anxiety is um, there's ten there tends to be an overestimation of like um, of the social costs. I say like if someone doesn't like my joke, then I will never have a friend in my entire life. Yeah. As opposed to that person just didn't like my joke, and that's all that means. Yeah. Um, so people will kind of create these predictions before they go to whatever the event is, whether it's a work happy hour or um, a first date or whatever it is. And then afterwards, there's a structured set of questions like, well, let's check in on that to start challenging um, some of those like over um, like overestimated probability of these really bad things happening or like how bad it would be if I did. Because typically what happens is people cope better than they give themselves credit for. But if they never reflect back on it, they can't learn. They just say, well, that was, that was terrible. Uh-huh. You know? um, so then being able to evaluate, well, did my prediction come true? And even if it did, how bad was it really? And how long are those consequences going to last? Um, so whether or not I would necessarily see someone right after they would fill this out so they feel like they have a way to really process that in a more useful way as mm-hmm. opposed to just engaging in that post-event rumination of, I can't believe I said that. They thought I was anxious. I'm never going to see those people again. I'm never going out again. Like, let's get out of that and actually break down what happened in a more um, sort of useful way. And that's great because if they can get in the practice or habit of that, then they can carry that, those exercises with them to lots of situations. Absolutely. And learn how to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For somebody who struggles with social anxiety, would you, and how does it look for you? There's a lot of teletherapy going on right now, not coming into the office. We all understand why, but a lot of people are yeah. continuing with that. Is that something that if you were working with a client who has social anxiety, would you want them to come in to see you? Would that be important, do you feel? Or do you think teletherapy would be okay still? You know, it's interesting. The research really does support teletherapy and, you know, for social anxiety. I think the difference though is like telehealth as a modality for one-on-one individual therapy is, is just as effective, however, not during a pandemic when folks couldn't do the exposures that we were having them do because they couldn't just right go to stores or talk to strangers. Um, so it's not necessarily the telehealth. It was more of the shutdown. Um, and it was hard, you know, we had to get really, really creative with the exposures we were having people do when, when we couldn't actually, um, yeah, yeah. Be in physical contact with people. Um, but I think as a modality, it's, it's perfectly, good as long as people are able to get that practice outside of session. I personally really like doing exposures um, with clients and we actually have a social anxiety group that we run that is very exposure based and we're um, on a pretty like busy street here in the city. And so we would have, you know, everyone to go out together and do these exposures. And it's um, I think useful for clients to see like, I'm willing to sort of like, you know, make a joke of myself too. And that's, that's okay. I can tolerate it too. Um, So we all would do them together. And I think there's a lot of power in that. So that is the one major con of the teletherapy is we can't really go do them together. Yeah. Yeah. About, um, when we had checked in beforehand, you had mentioned social media and the way that people might use it socially or as a substitute, or I guess I would, would you mind talking a little bit about how social media can impact our social lives and the anxiety that could, you know, be part of that? Yeah, I mean, the two things that come to mind for me regarding social media is, um, is again, that safety behavior sort of avoidance strategy of like, well, I talk to people on, you know, whatever it is, Facebook or Twitter or whatever, and so I'm connected, um, but maybe using that as like a crutch or like as an instead of 
having, you know, in-person um, interaction. But the second one, which I think probably um, is equally, if not more powerful is, you know, outside of just social anxiety, but just generally the like social comparisons um, and people obviously curating what they're posting and like a lot of, you know, people with social anxiety and say, well, it looks like that person, you know, is, you know, really competent or has a really active social life or they probably never feel nervous. Um, look at, you know, look at all the fun things they do and all the friends they have, um, which can sort of contribute to the, um, to the distorted thinking of like assuming everyone else, you know, has got this down. And actually that's something else that I didn't mention, but there is that like misconception of like, well, no one else ever seems, seems anxious at these things. Everyone else just speaks up at meetings when, you know, we don't know how other people are feeling and most people feel, um, some level, like I said before, of social anxiety, but there is an assumption of like, it's just so easy for everyone else. Yes, that's great. Um, I think you had mentioned to me earlier too, that you have found some people are struggling more with reopening than the initial shutdown. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did. I definitely have noticed that. And I think, you know, I think there's a, a few things that contribute <clears throat> to that, but I think, you know, the, I think the primary, the primary contributing factor to that is the shutdown is very clear. Like that was a rule, right? Like everything is shut down. There's no gray area. We don't go anywhere. Restaurants are closed, you know, everything non-essential is closed. Um, so that was very easy for people to like understand and follow the rules. Um, and people who tend to be more anxious, whether it's social anxiety or, or otherwise, tend to be more like black and white thinkers, like all or nothingness and like lots of rules. And it's like, just tell me what to do and give me a structure. Um, and so that was very clear. However, the reopening is like much less clear. There's so much more gray. Um, people's tolerances are much different. The rules are a little bit like, I mean, there are, there's the CDC guidelines, but a lot of people are still not comfortable, you know, going inside somewhere without a mask or traveling or getting on an airplane. Um, and so there's a lot more gray. And so I think that that reopening, um, especially depending on people's own levels of comfort, and then we're talking about assertiveness and having to advocate for oneself, which is very, very hard for people with social, mm-hmm. with social anxiety. So that's a whole other um, sort of, yeah, category there of work to be done. Of, you know, I'm inside and someone's not wearing a mask and I don't feel safe, but I couldn't possibly say anything. Um, so I think that reopening, just the grayness of it has been really hard for people to know how to navigate it. Absolutely. Um, do you feel that a feeling of distrust of it? I mean, it's been really unfortunate how the past year has really fostered a a sense of distrust. I mean, in our own country and Mm -hmm. is that a factor that you see with anybody's anxiety? You know, I don't trust other people, so I don't want to go out. Is that playing in? Yeah, I think that comes back sort of the concept of control and folks with anxiety tend to really want a lot of control or they, they're sort of under the illusion that they have a lot of control. And so now that, you know, when we're talking about other people's behavior and like, what are other people doing yeah. in their free time? And now I need, you know, now I'm expected to go to this, you know, dinner or party or whatever it is with all these folks. And I don't know what they've been doing. And so I think, yeah, I mean, I think it can, it can look and feel and sound a lot like you're saying like distress. And I would conceptualize that coming from like, well, I don't control other people. And that's really hard for me. And so unless I know what everyone else has been doing and everyone they've been into contact with, then I'm not going. Um, and people have to sort of navigate those lines differently. And so I think, yeah, that idea of choosing to trust others or choosing to live with, um, with a certain, with, you know, some amount of uncertainty um, is really hard for, for people. When you're, when you're working with people and using this type of therapy to help them with their anxiety, I know this is a really big question and I'm sure it's really different from person to person, but how, how does treatment generally go? Is, you know, how long does it take? Is there an average for how long it takes for somebody to build up their tolerance for anxiety or even be more comfortable or even just not feel it as much? What does that tend to look like? Yeah, that's a good question and one that people ask all the time. Like, how many sessions will this take? Um, and you're right. I mean, 
you know, being in the field too, it varies so much from person to person and sort of what, um, what else might be going on in their lives or how long the anxiety has been reinforced, how severe it is. Um, and also how willing they are to really kind of dive in and, and do the work. Um, cause it is challenging. It's hard. Um, but I mean, if we look at the research, right, like the research for an evidence-based protocol for social anxiety disorder, assuming like that's just like the focus of the treatment mm-hmm. would suggest somewhere in the neighborhood of like 15 to 20 sessions. Um, but again, that can vary a lot. Yeah. Why, why is it important to be social? Why, why work towards this? How much time do we have? Yeah, I mean, well, we are, you know, we're social beings. Um, we de- we've depended on each other for always, for survival, for connection. Um, there is um, a lot of research. It's just sort of being disseminated more now, and I'm guessing you've probably heard about it, but it's, um, it's sort of in that... Uh, under-controlled, over-controlled spectrum with folks with uh, social anxiety tending to be more on that over-controlled end of things um, and folks with chronic depression, um, folks on the spectrum and the autism spectrum. Um, and what we know is that like at, at the heart of it now with this newer research um, is that they're really conditions of social isolation and loneliness. Um, and without that like genuine feeling connected to others, it can come out in different ways. So like social anxiety is diagnostically different than, um, than chronic depression, than obsessive compulsive personality disorder, OCPD. Um, those are different disorders, but that sort of like temperament underpinning, they're all um, disorders of social isolation and not feeling connected to people or like part of, they use the word, they use the term tribe. And I know some people don't like that, but that's what the researchers have used, um, like not feeling a part of the tribe. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's so important for our emotional well-being, for our physical well-being. Um, and even if it's, you know, not everyone wants to have 1500 best friends and that's okay. Um, but the research really shows it is important to have at least a couple of people in your life that you really feel close to, that you can trust and feel connected to. And yeah. I actually would like to ask one more question. Um, and then I think, I, I think this has been great. Um, yeah. yeah. Where do you stand on, you know, using medication to manage anxiety and social anxiety? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's another really good question. Um, medication uh, you know, really depending on the class and the function of it can be very, very different. And so I'll share with you my perspective based on my training and how I conceptualize anxiety. I'm not a prescriber and I'm not, you know, I don't have a medical degree. And so I want to just make clear, this is my, my opinion based on how I, how I do treatment and how I understand anxiety to function. So there's a difference between, you know, as you know, something like an SSRI. So something like Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, those are medications that people take once a day at the same time, and they don't necessarily feel anything when they take it, right? It's just something that's helping to regulate the levels of serotonin in their brain, which can help them overall regulate their anxiety levels better and can help them make use of some of the skills we're doing in therapy. So um, those types of medications, I think, can be helpful for people, especially if people are feeling like I, you know, I'm really having a a lot of symptoms. I have really severe social anxiety. I can't even engage in treatment unless I kind of have something to like help me take the edge off a little bit. Like, okay, I can fully understand that and support that. And a lot of the clients that I work with are on some, some sort of SSRI. I think, and this is where I'm saying my opinion, where it gets a little more problematic is when we're using, um, what we refer to as like PRN medications or as needed medications. And those mm-hmm. tend to be the benzos, like, you know, Xanax, like I mentioned before, Ativan, Lorazepam, a lot of, and again, I know a lot of people take these medications. I'm not trying to villainize them. The problem is when they're being used as a safety behavior, it, it inhibits someone's ability to learn that they can cope with anxiety. So if every time I, you know, have a social gathering, I take a Xanax. Yes, you know what, it will work. (laughs) It will make me feel calmer, but I'm not learning anything about my ability to just socialize on my own. I'm just learning that I am dependent, you know, on something else to help me get through it. So in that way, I think it is problematic in terms of someone being able to actually learn to cope on their own. Um, There are situations where, you know, okay, fine. You know, I've had clients say, you know, I really, really am terrified of flying and I fly once a year. Okay, so if once a year you hop on a flight and you take a Xanax, is that the end of the world? I suppose not. But 
that's very different than every single time I have to socialize. Um, so that's just, again, based on like my conceptualization of, of how people tend to use those. Well, like you said, there's safety behavior, but there's also risk of dependency if you're using them too frequently as well. Yes, yes. And all the research showing, um, you know, the very, very strong relationship between regular uh, benzo use and dementia and Alzheimer's. And that's another concerning thing. So, yeah, I mean, from, a, from an anxiety treatment perspective, it's concerning. And absolutely, they're very, um, you know, easy to get um, to grow, uh, to build a dependence on. Um, people tend to need more pretty quickly. Um, it impacts sleep. It impacts, um, you know, brain and memory development. There's a, there's a lot of things. Again, I don't want to get too outside of my, my expertise here, but there are definitely concerns. So um, if someone is thinking about using them or, or are or is taking them, I think it's important just to really have a good conversation with their prescriber. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your your time today and all this. Yeah, I hope it was helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. It, absolutely. Um, do you, if somebody wanted to work with you, is there a way they can get in touch with you or is that something that you're offering right now? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm currently full, but given the nature of work that I do, I tend to wrap up with folks, you know, pretty regularly. I don't see people for long, long periods of time. Um, but yeah, our clinic is, um, it's the depression and anxiety specialty clinic of Chicago. So, um, the website is just the acronym, which is DASC, D-A-S-C, and then Chicago. So two C's, D-A-S-C, Chicago.com. Um, and we're a large practice. There's 25 of us and we all do, um, different sorts of evidence-based work and a lot of us treat social anxiety. And like I said, we do have that social anxiety group, which is a good resource. Thank you. I mean, so much for all this information has been really interesting and, and helpful. Is there anything else that, you know, we didn't cover that you want to make sure to, to share with the listeners about this? Um, you know, I did just want to maybe give a little bit of a plug for the National Social Anxiety Center, just because it's a great resource for people. Um, so if anyone you know, who's listening or knows of someone who might benefit from just like more information um, or how to find a therapist that specializes in social anxiety. Um, there's a network of regional clinics, my clinic being the Chicago clinic, um, but we're all over the country and it's called National Social Anxiety Center. And the website is just nationalsocialanxietycenter.com. Um, and it's a great place to read about social anxiety. There's also resources for clinicians. If you have other clinicians that listen to this um, podcast, there's um, there's training videos that we've done at national conferences that we just posted on there. Everything is free. Um, we're just trying to disseminate information about social anxiety. Um, and then there's regional clinics across the country. So if someone says, oh, like I know of someone in Houston, then like, okay, we have a Houston clinic. Um, so we sort of serve as a hub. So people reach out to me through this organization and I'll help them get connected with someone in the Chicagoland area who I know is um, doing good work for uh, or with folks with social anxiety. So it's a good resource. I just wanted to uh, let people know about that one. That's great. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah, thank you. I want to thank Dr. Lauren Neiman for her time today. You can find links to the resources she shared in the show notes for the episode at musictherapypodcast.com. Hope you guys are hanging in there and see you next week.